Tell me this, who is the Olympic Olympian that has won the most medals ever? Who would that be? Do you know his name? What was that? Um, it's a swimmer. I think it's Michael Phelps over um, Mr. Spitz there. So um, he won, Michael Phelps won 28 Olympic medals. You know, to accomplish that kind of achievement requires an amazing amount of self-mastery or self-discipline or self-control. In his own words, Michael Phelps would say something like this, that the only activities he, had, he engaged in during his training were, number one, eating right, number two, sleeping, and number three, training. For any high-performance athlete, they are examples of self-mastery over their physical bodies. Now, when you think of self-control, what is the first thing you think of? And I know here's what you're probably thinking of this morning. Pastor Oakwin is going to ruin my summer of gluttonous cookouts and entertainment. Okay? Okay, I understand. We don't like to think about self-control. It's drudgery, lack of freedom, strict set of guidelines, and external controls that everybody dreads. So when, I, when we say those words, self-control, we kind of recoil. But what I'm about to say to you, however, may surprise you. When we think about self-control, we often think that it is a form of rigorous behavior modification that is void of desires. Self-control, however, does not come from external rules and regulations. All forms of self-mastery are, in fact, driven by your desires, not some kind of external form of rules. And when you think about it, it's actually pretty intuitive. Okay, so think about Michael Phelps for just a moment. What, why is it that Michael Phelps or any high-performance athlete disciplines himself to arise early and eat a balanced meal and do rigorous training and to go to bed early and then wake up and do it all over again day after day after day? And the answer is that the athlete has an overarching desire that is greater than his desire for laziness, Pop-Tarts, couch surfing. So there's something greater out there. The Apostle Paul illustrated it in this way. He's talking about Olympic athletes himself. The Olympics existed back then um, in the ancient days as well. 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. There's the self-control. And here is the desire. They do it. There's an overarching desire that supersedes. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. So what is it that results in the athlete's self-control? Desire for that perishable medal or that perishable wreath. And we all know what that represents. When you get a medal and you get the gold medal, what is that? You're the greatest of all times, the GOAT. That's what they call Michael Phelps, the GOAT, the greatest of all times. And we understand that to mean the accolades, um, the praise of the people, the goats, the greatest of all times. If you think about the praise of man, however, we should modify that acronym to be ghost, the greatest of a short amount of time, because the praise of man only is short-lived. Michael Phelps' Olympic performance can only last a certain amount of when he's getting older and somebody's going to come and supersede him. And that is the problem there. When the earthly race is done, listen to Michael Phelps' words. If your whole life was about building up to one race, one performance, or one event, 
How does that sustain everything that comes after the event? Did you hear his words? What sustains everything that comes after you have achieved that? What is the motivation for self-control then? Eventually, for me at least, there was one question that hit me like a ton of bricks. Who was I outside of the swimming pool? So after the race or when somebody breaks your record, what's the point of self-control then? And apparently the athlete's overriding desire to, for the praise of man or that medal was not ultimate if it cannot sustain everything that comes afterwards. So here's a more significant question for you to ponder this morning. What is the greatest desire that orders and fuels God's people's desires so as to enjoy sexual desires rightly ordered without sexual immorality, to relish the variety of food and drink that we're enjoying this summer in cookouts without gluttony or drunkenness, to appreciate the beauty of human form without jealousy or envy, to pursue justice and forgiveness without seeking revenge, to use our possessions that God has given us without greed or hoarding or stinginess, to work hard without becoming a slave to your work, to think truth without fear, worry, or despair. This is the question. What is the ultimate delight that orders all of these others and results in self-control? So yeah, this morning we are talking about self-control. But, but, I'm not speaking to you about self-control as a form of stoic or legalistic behavior modification. And its opposite is what we're actually seeing today in our society. The opposite is that we're seeing a total abandonment of self-control in our society. And if you have eyes to see it, our society's supposed freedoms to follow their desires wherever they want. Okay, so if you just kind of take a pulse of our society right now, following their sexual desires, their gender desires, whatever it may be, they think they're free to do that, but it hasn't resulted in freedom but a totalitarian enslavement in which everyone must bow the knee to these desires. So this morning we are speaking about a greater desire that orders all others and thus results in a freeing self-mastery, a greater desire of an imperishable wreath, a delight so delightful that it fuels and fills the human heart, resulting in appropriate mastery of all other desires. The great church father Augustine said this, um, it is only when the creator is rightly loved, when your delight and your desire is first in him. That is when he is loved for what he is and, and nothing, no creature is loved or delighted in or desired in place of him. So if we want virtue, substitute self-control right there by which we live it seems to me that the best definition of virtue is to say that it is, it is the ordering of our loves and our passions. In other words, self-control is not some stoic practice, but it is the right ordering of our loves and our desires. What do you love the most? Okay. Again, going back to Paul's illustration of an athlete, I didn't finish the quote last time. But when Paul talks about an athlete, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control for a perishable wreath. But God's people, Paul, 
we do it for something eternal, a greater delight. With that in mind, please turn to Second Peter chapter one, uh, first this morning. First, Second Peter, not First Peter. Second Peter chapter one this morning, and that is on page one eighty-three in the back section of the Bible in the chair in front of you. We're continuing our series, as Pastor Rod mentioned, on hope for everyday life. Our summer series is hope for fruitful service. And this Sunday, we're developing self-control that leads to fruitful service. So 2 Peter chapter 1, the Word of God says this. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of uh, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, that's the word of God, so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature. And that's kind of a fuzzy term, but he's about to explain what that divine nature is and all of the characteristics that we've been studying this summer. So we've escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, the beginning of the divine nature, your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. There's our our characteristic for today. Jump down to verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. That's the point of this series, Hopeful, Fruitful Service. In the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and friends, God's people, if you're lacking these qualities, verse 9, you're blind and short-sighted, having forgotten your former purification from sin. Summarize that as this. If you're not growing in these qualities, you've forgotten what the gospel is all about. Okay, there's an aspect of the gospel that is not permeating your spiritual DNA and bearing fruit. That's what's going on. So in the summer series, we're talking about all of these supply to your faith blank, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control. And this morning, for the characteristic of self-control, we are going to illustrate that from Genesis 39. So if you will now, please turn to Genesis 39. That is on page 30 in the front section of the Bible in the chair in front of you. So Genesis 39, the first book of the Bible. The book of Genesis speaks of how God created the world, and then through mankind's sin, God's beautiful creation was broken and thrown into turmoil. God is unrelenting, however, in accomplishing his plan, and he selects a messed up family. Now, guys, we're all messed up. We're all messed up, but he selects a messed up family um, to, to begin his work of redemption. That family was childless Abraham and Sarah to whom God miraculously brought the child of promise, Isaac. Then childless Isaac and Rebekah prayed to the Lord for a child, and the Lord gave them twins, Jacob and Esau. God renamed Jacob, Israel, and Jacob bore 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel, um, through which God would bring his redemptive plan. Bible trivia question right now. Who was Jacob's favorite son out of the 12? Oh, you got it. It was Joseph. It was Joseph. And the other non-favored sons of Jacob, were they happy about this? (laughs) 
Of course not. Don't play favorites with your children. Just don't. It doesn't go well. They left, him, they left Joseph for dead in a pit one day until a caravan came by and took Joseph into slavery into Egypt, a foreign land. Joseph was separated from his family and living there as a slave. So we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 39, and Joseph will be a picture of self-control. Okay? Now, part of the way that the human author writes Genesis 39 So Genesis 39 is a piece of historical literature. But part of the way that the human author writes Genesis 39 is through a series of repetitions. So I'm going to point the repetition out to you. And I'm going to say, hey, say this or say this. Just humor me and say it when I ask you to, okay? My point is this. I'm going to show you the repetition to bring out the meaning of the text. Verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. An officer of Pharaoh, the highest person in the, the king of Egypt. So is this random that some man that's an official of Pharaoh purchases Joseph? Is this random? Say no. No. And he bought him from the Ishmaelites. Now, in the Hebrew, you're not going to catch this in the English, and that's okay. But in the Hebrew, it says, bought him from the hand of the Ishmaelites. That doesn't mean anything to you right now, but hang on to this. Say hand. Say hand. Okay? Now, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him. Second time we've seen that. And how the Lord caused all, say all, all that he did to prosper. Notice those last three words, prosper, in his hand. Say hand. Okay. Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all, say all, all that he owned, he put in his charge. In the Hebrew, the word charge is in his hand. It came about that from that time on, he made him overseer in his house, and over all, say all, all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all, say all, all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything. The Hebrew word is all. Say all. (laughs) All that he owned in Joseph's charge. In his hand. In his hand. Okay. And with him, with Joseph, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Oh, now we have an interesting little editorial comment right now. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Oh, my goodness. Joseph was a hottie. He was a, he was a stud muffin. He was a looker. <laughs> it's right there in the text, right? And that's important because it's going to factor into what's about to happen. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked at the hottie <laughs> and desired Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything except in the house. And he has put all, say all, all that he owns in my charge, in my hand. 
There is no one greater in this house than I, and, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Notice the self-control. Now it happened one day that when he was in the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were there inside. That, that means no witnesses. Okay. She caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garments in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of the household and And she constructed a lie about Joseph. She tells a lie. She tells a lie to her husband and then jumped down to verse 19. When his, his master, when Joseph's master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into jail in the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in jail, the king's, Pharaoh's prisoners. And he's going to be right next to them. Is this random? Tell me, is this random? No. And then the redemptive story kind of repeats itself all over again. Deja vu all over again. Listen to this. We've heard all of this before. But the Lord was with Joseph. And this is new. And extended kindness. That's the Hebrew word chesed, which is God's covenant, faithful grace to his people. And gave him favor in his sight. We have heard that before. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge and all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever all was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything all under Joseph's charge in his hand because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. There's the repetition. So let's kind of see what this means. Three keys to develop the greatest delight. We're not talking about some kind of ritual, uh, um, regulatory, self-control, behavior modification. We're talking about a greater delight. Three keys to develop the greatest delight in God that results in the fruit of self-control. And the first one is this. We need to understand what self-control is. It's not some kind of just behavior modification. Understand the picture of self-control that we find in Joseph foregoing some desires for the sake of a greater desire. Okay. Now, the Old Testament narratives are so rich. Let me give you just, uh, I've already given you one hint about how to interpret them, sometimes with repetition. Let me give you another hint that I tell our seminary students like Monday here and like Alfonso was in the last seminary cohort. Whenever you come to an Old Testament narrative, Genesis, Exodus, all of the Old Testament narratives. I know we think Old Testament is so hard to read and just give me something like Proverbs or the New Testament uh, letters. But here is something that will help you. Whenever you come to the Old Testament narratives, you will always, always, say always, always learn something about God, man, and God's plan. Every Old Testament narrative will have those three threads in them. You will learn something about God, man, and God's plan. When you find something about God, about the way that God is functioning or responding, then you're going to learn about his character. We get to know God better. That's what the scriptures are for. When you see the behavior and responses of man, 
you learn something about righteous behavior or unrighteous behavior, God's righteousness that he wants to be characteristic of us. And most of the time, preachers come to the Old Testament narrative and focus on the moral responsibility part, sometimes to the exclusion of God and God's redemptive plan. But the, the, the Old Testament narratives communicate God, man, and his plan. Man is part of that, and that's where we get our morals from. Okay? When you learn something about God's redemptive plan, what God is doing with man in these narratives, you learn how God loves his people. We saw the word chesed, God's covenant grace with his people, and how he will redeem them. And if I pull on that redemptive thread, if the Old Testament is a tapestry, and I pull on that redemptive plan thread, it will take me right to Christ all the time in the New Testament. Okay? So this morning, each sermon point will be focused on one of these elements in this order, man, God, and God's plan. And in the Genesis 39 Joseph story, Joseph is thrust front and center and all of the Bible interpreters park on Joseph's character in the midst of this trial. And I believe that self-control is an apt enough description of what we see here. We see a picture or a portrait of self-control in, in Joseph. We see Joseph with rightly ordered desires. And we see three ways in which that is true. Number one is this. Joseph was foregoing the desires to use his position for the benefit of self but instead use it for the benefit of others. The story repeats itself twice in the way that Joseph functioned. In the beginning, he's a slave, and yet he does not resign himself to mediocre or half-hearted work. In the end, he is a prisoner, and yet he does not resign himself to mediocre or half-hearted work. Listen to me here, please, on this, okay? Character is not situation-specific. Say that with me. Character is not situation-specific. The repetition of this twice shows us there was something repeatable about Joseph's character. His first manner of responding was not a fluke or an aberration. And in this case, whatever he touched benefited his boss. Here is what that means in terms of self-control. He forewent the desire to, for escape, for ease, for comfort, in order to achieve a greater desire to benefit his master. Sounds like properly ordered desires of loving others before self. Second way we see this, this is the most obvious here in the text, okay? Most obvious about Joseph's resistance of sexual temptation. Forgoing the desire for illicit pleasure, but instead desiring the beauty of God's righteousness. It's a lot of words right there, but let me explain. As I mentioned, character is not situation-specific, and that applies to Potiphar's wife as well. <coughs> Potiphar's wife's playing the field was probably not just limited to Joseph. Like how many well-built and handsome slaves probably came across her path? <laughs> Did you think about that? How many hotties came across her path? Handsome men are a dime a dozen, right? Just look at your pastors around here. Just look at them. <laughs> no, you're probably saying, Brent, I pay you guys a lot more than a dime, and I have to look at you, and that's not a pleasant thing. Well, back to Joseph for just a moment. 
Are we to assume that Joseph was the first and only one for Potiphar's wife? Probably not. Joseph had every reason to give in to temptation here. He could have been thinking this, I'm already a slave. Why not grab a little pleasure with my master's wife? She does it all the time anyway. He's placed everything in my hand. Surely he's okay with me playing around with her as well. I've earned a little bit of pleasure. I deserve a bit of this kind of pleasure. What was Joseph thinking? And we don't have to wonder because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. That's right. There is no one greater than this house than I am. And he, the master, has not withheld anything from me except you. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God and take you, his wife? What is at the heart of Joseph's ordering of his desires? Was it sexual pleasure? Was that his greatest love? Absolutely not. How could Joseph resist? I mean, he's young, he's virile. The text says he's a hottie. How could this hottie resist? Does anybody expect him to resist? It's not natural for a a young man like this to resist. Self-control is not natural. It is supernatural. Joseph delights. Joseph's delight was not first in loving sexual pleasure but in first loving God and the beauty of God's way in marriage. You are not my wife. Joseph delights in God's covenant of marriage and how God has arranged marriage, and that means he's delighting in God. You know, that statement right there, when he says, um, how can I do this great thing and sin against the Lord? That statement right there is a classic statement on what the fear of the Lord means. The fear of the Lord is manifested right there in Joseph's life and has produced in him wise and righteous behavior. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's serving him well right now and will serve him later well in the future. So Joseph loves God most and thus his passions are rightly ordered. Do you see that's where self-control comes from? A greater desire, that's where it comes from. In time, Joseph will have his own wife, and he will enjoy sexual pleasure, and he will have two children as well. The third way we see Joseph relinquish certain desires for others is foregoing the desire to despair and instead desire to hope. Joseph could have responded to all this, no good deed goes unpunished. I was faithful to God, and now I'm in prison. Now, the text is silent in regard to Joseph's thoughts at this point, but we find him continuing to work for the benefit of his master once he's in prison. And at the end of the story, we will see that Joseph had something in him, an embryonic spark of hope that would later blossom into this statement to his brothers that had treated him evilly and started this entire process You guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about the salvation of many. So somewhere along the line, Joseph had a spark of hope. So he did not despair. He could have despaired, but there was a spark of hope that ultimately um, came to distillation, and God is working everything out for his good. 
So let's pause for just a moment. Do you see the picture of self-control? If you don't see the picture of self-control, it's never going to be true in your life. If you don't understand what it is, foregoing certain desires for a greater desire, that's the picture of self-control. So look at the areas of your life where you you are consistently not succeeding in self-control. Entertainment, I must have amusement. Sexual pleasure, I must have the exhilaration of that brings food. I must have my taste buds delighted and my stomach full. Possessions, I must have security or choices or options or status with my possessions. Relationships, I must have a relationship or else I will despair. Or I must maintain bitterness over a relationship because they hurt me and I'm going to get venge and I'm going to just revenge and I'm going to be angry. Success or work, I must have the praise of man. I must be the goat, the greatest of all time. You know, without self-control, you think you are free to chase after all these things. I'm just going to follow my heart to choose them unhindered. But ultimately, you become a slave to these desires. You're a spiritual slave to them, just like Joseph was a physical slave in Egypt. Your desires and loves are improperly ordered. Now, number two. Let's look at the second key that develops the greatest delight in God. Okay? So the first one was all about man and the picture of self-control. This one is about God. Okay? So God, man, and his plan. This one is about God. And when we see this, here's the text is showing us something about the beauty of God. How can we not delight in this kind of a God compared to all of the other delights we are chasing? Believe the power of God's sovereign exercise of love for his people. I know that sentence is a mouthful too, but every word is important. We see God's power in this narrative orchestrating the seemingly random details. I had you, I noted it as we went through the text. Was Joseph being sold to Potiphar's official? I'm sorry, Pharaoh's official, Potiphar. Was that random? What did you say? No. Was Joseph being delivered into the prison of Pharaoh's prisoners? Is that random? No. Is it random that I'm standing here before you today as a pastor? Is that random? Let me tell you a little story, okay? Oh, well, thank you for that. <laughs> You're probably the one, okay? How did I actually get here There's a God behind all the random details. Let me tell you this story. There was a young man who loved racing around in cars. That's not me. But just before his high school graduation in the early 60s, he had a severe car accident. The severe injuries he sustained caused him to lose interest in car racing. And he picked up other interests like movie making. Okay? That movie, the movie that he made and released in 1977, became a smash hit. And as a nine-year-old boy, I saw Star Wars in 1977. And from that time on, I wanted to be an astronaut. Ultimately, where do you go to college if you want to be an astronaut? Purdue. So that's where I came. And here at Purdue is where I found Faith Church and learned about the sufficient scriptures that I needed for my life. And I started to want to build people and not rockets anymore. So here's the question. 
why do I stand before you today? Because God allowed George Lucas to have an accident way back in the 1960s. All of this is not random. All of this is not random at all. God is sovereignly orchestrating all of this. The mind of man may plan his ways, but the Lord is directing all of his steps. Just like we see in the Joseph story as well. God's powerful hands are also orchestrating everything to cause to prosper when appropriate. The Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. Who put everything in Joseph's hand? Who did it? It was not Potiphar. Who put everything in Joseph's hand? It was God. But shall we accept God's blessing and not his challenges? No, because God exercises his sovereignty to cause to suffer when strategic. She caught him by the garment saying, lie with me, and he left his garment in her hand. If God put everything in Joseph's hand, who put the garment in her hand? Who did it? God. The text in Genesis 39 repeats over and over, in his hand, in his hand. And when we come to the point where the garment is in her hand and we think, oh my goodness, is that random? Is that an accident? No. That led to Joseph's more suffering in prison. The same powerful God who caused the strategic suffering of Joseph. Indeed, this is a rich example of all that we have studied in 1 Peter so far, this first half of this year, suffering under unjust authority. Joseph was righteous, and he suffered unjustly for this. You remember Peter, in the first Peter that we just studied, said, if you suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. But Joseph's going to prison? Seriously? Yes, I don't feel blessed. Of course you don't feel blessed. And you're saying to me that God caused all of this? Yes, I'm saying to that. A powerful God that can control circumstances like this can be terrifying. Unless he's not just powerful, but he's also personal. Because God exercises his sovereign power personally to be with his people. You read it. You repeated it. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph because the Lord was with him. You saw that repeated over and over. And what is more, God exercises his power personally to keep his covenant with his people. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness or his covenant loyalty or grace to him and gave him favor while he was in prison. You know, friends, Michael Phelps went through all of his rigorous training to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Okay? And although we know that that is not eternal, the, the perishable wreath, the metal is not eternal. Michael Phelps said, if your whole life was about building up to one race, one performance or event, how does that sustain everything that comes afterwards? The answer is clearly that it does not. This powerful God who exercises his control out of love for you and me, his people, he is the greatest delight. Hear me on this. Your possessions, your earthly pleasures, The praise of man, your food, does not have this kind of personal loving power exercised for your benefit 
that God did with Joseph. Perishable metals do not make covenants of grace with you. So, friend, if you're exercising self-control and disciplining your body for the praise of man, I mean, that praise will only last until your body is not so attractive anymore. Okay? If you're exercising self-control in an area to become wealthy, what good are earthly riches when you're in the hole? And if you have no self-control in certain areas, is God your greatest love ordering all of your other desires? Let me do a shout-out for you, Faith Church North. Thank you for being a church that is working on these kinds of things. So about four weeks ago, you did VBS, and uh, many of you forewent a lot of things in order to do VBS. Let me, let me just share that with you. So you... F- those of you who came to serve that night, you forwent entertainment. You forwent maybe sitting down on your computer, maybe doing stock market trades, preparing for the next day, uh, making sales phone calls that night. You forwent earning more money so that you could be here. You forwent um, sleep in order to be here, staying up a little later so that you could serve later here. All that for a greater delight because you loved God and you loved these little kids. Oh, thank you for exercising self-control and ordering your passions in that way. May your tribe increase and may you excel still more. The third key that develops the greatest delight in God is this one. This one is going to be about God's plan. Okay? Um, let me go back. Grasp the pleasure of God's redemptive plan. What is all this Joseph story about? What is it picturing? What is the significance in terms of how God is working with his his people? It's this. Do you see that God is using an innocent, suffering servant for the saving of many? And I say each one of those words with strategic significance. God is using an innocent, suffering servant for the saving of many. Friends, Joseph's innocent suffering had a purpose. His mastery of his self for a greater desire, uh, yes, it landed him in, in prison, but there's something greater going on here. God orchestrated it all so Joseph would get to know one of Pharaoh's prisoners who would later remember Joseph and present him before Pharaoh himself. God wanted Joseph to be ultimately, proximately, right next geographically to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, so that Joseph's family one day would come down to Egypt and be saved under Joseph's hand as the second um, in charge of Egypt. The innocent sufferer, Joseph, who was left for dead in the pit, was was raised again, to be exalted over Egypt, and through that, his family would be saved. Notice at the point where Joseph is out of the pit and he was raised up. Notice the similarities. I'll point them out as we go to Jesus Christ. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The king of Egypt recognizes that now. 
You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all of my people shall do homage only in the throne. I, Pharaoh, will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Echoes of future Christ, Father saying to Christ, I give you the entire earth. Let's keep reading. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him with garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. Um, One day Jesus Christ will not be naked on the cross, but he will come back again in radiant splendor. And he had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. Sounds a little bit like every knee will bow before him. And he said him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Oh, this is pointing to a lowly servant that was humbled and suffering, was exalted, raised up to the highest level one day. Joseph foreshadows all of that with Christ. And at the end of the Joseph innocent suffering story, Joseph says this to his brothers. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant all of this for good. God turned the greatest evil into the greatest good. And he used an innocent, suffering servant in the midst of it to bring about this present result, the preservation of many people alive, particularly the family of Joseph, so that they would spawn the redemptive story that later would culminate in Christ. Here's the point. Joseph exercised self-control because of a greater delight and desire. And God used that, the innocent, suffering servant, exercising self-control to save his family. And that family ultimately was the lineage of Jesus. And let's talk about Jesus for just a moment. Jesus himself exercised self-control in all things. He forewent the pleasures of heaven for a greater desire, the love of his Father and the love of you. And by his innocent suffering, foregoing, using his position to benefit himself, but he used it to benefit you. Foregoing the illicit pleasures. You remember when Satan tempted him? And he said, no. Forgoing the illicit pleasures, but delighting in God's righteousness. Forgoing despair, but delighting in God's plan and accomplishing the sacrificial plan for you. And as a result, he has provided salvation for many. Oh, friends, oh, friends. Believing friends, hear me. Peter has said this. If self-control in the way that I have described it is not being added to your faith... You've forgotten this about Jesus. You've forgotten your former purification. And you've forgotten the delight of the gospel. And your love in that area is disordered. We would love for you to talk to us, talk to the pastors, talk to the deacons, your small group leader about how to get you help to have your orders, have your loves ordered appropriately. Unbeliever, you may be here today. If you manifest some kind of modicum of self-control for a moment, you understand. In this earth, it's only for a perishable wreath. And when you obtain it on this earth, what will sustain you afterwards, as Michael Phelps has said? Another, another perishable wreath that you're going to try to go after then? 
what then will sustain you when you're actually standing before the Lord? If, on the other hand, you have no self-control in any area and you say that you're enslaved to every passion that comes along, oh, friends, there is freedom in Christ. Will you, by faith today, come to know Jesus who loved you, exercise self-control on your behalf, and allow him to be your greatest delight so that all the things you're enslaved to in your passions will be properly ordered and you will be free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just your scriptures that has not left us without instruction and guidance. We thank you, Father, for revealing these things to us. And will you mold us so that our greatest delight is in Jesus Christ. Help us to see him as greater than anything else and allow that to properly order our desires, resulting in a freeing self-control. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.